a few weeks ago, I was asked the question, what do you think is the leading cause of death in the black community? I remember answering the question with some no-brainer answer, or what I thought to be a no-brainer answer, of diabetes or hypertension or, you know, some other lifestyle-inflicted disease. However, I was quickly enlightened that the leading cause of death in the black community is smoking. Smoking. Smoking-related illnesses are the number one cause of death in the African-American community. Surpassing all other causes of death, including HIV, AIDS, homicide, diabetes, and accidents. When I learned this fact, my mind immediately went to, why didn't I know this? If this was the number one thing that was killing us, why didn't I know this? Why don't you know this? Why don't we know this? Through my study, I realized that it's no coincidence that I didn't know that fact. It's no coincidence that you didn't know that fact. It's no coincidence that your uncle smokes menthols. It's no coincidence that your best friend is addicted to smoking weed because of the Swisher Sweets that they're wrapping their weed into. And it's no coincidence that you're addicted to your vape. Big Tobacco knows they're killing you. And when I say you, I mean you. They're targeting you. You black boy, you black girl, you young person, you gay person, they're targeting you. If you're vulnerable, if you're colored, if you're anything considered other, they're targeting you. Are we really gonna let them get away with that? This is Chris with the new Chris podcast. Let's get into it. Recently, I started working for a nonprofit that is geared towards inspiring young people to live tobacco-free lives. Uh, for most of you who know me intimately, you know that I'm, I tend to be a little liberal when it comes to my politics and my thoughts. I'm for the decriminalization of all drugs. I'm for legalizing marijuana. I'm for a lot of things, and I have my own reasons as to why I have those stance, that stance on those topics. And some of my friends were surprised that I went and worked for a, a nonprofit that had this stance against tobacco. But what some people don't understand is that tobacco and weed and, and like all these other things I was talking about before, they're worlds apart from each other. And what I would like for us to understand by the end of this podcast is that the fight against big tobacco is just as much as a social justice issue as the fight to legalize marijuana, as a fight to ban death row, as a fight to, to make our prison system better and fair. 
And by the end of this episode, I, I, I really want to relay that to you. This nonprofit truth has connected me with so many great activists, one of them being Lincoln Mondi, who you'll hear from later. As a Truth College leader, I've had many opportunities to attend webinars that equips their activists with the necessary information about the topic at hand. These webinars have completely blown my mind about Big Tobacco. And this is not a an ad for truth. I'm just talking about my experience and what I've learned. So yeah, they've completely blown my mind about Big Tobacco. The fight against Big Tobacco is a social justice issue, point blank, period. Big Tobacco despite knowing how dangerous their products are, still throughout the years, have purposefully targeted the most vulnerable communities. Young, black, gay, you name it. Big Tobacco has preyed on them and they're still doing it. Listen to these actual quotes from tobacco industry executives revealing their deliberate and exploitive ways they target the black community. This is what Big Tobacco said about the black community, read by the black community. We don't smoke the shit, we just sell it. We reserve the right to smoke for the young, the poor, the black, and the stupid. Young blacks have found their thing, and it's menthol. Smoking and health is of little concern to the African people, and it seems not to be a popular issue among them. African Americans have higher death rates from tobacco-related causes compared to any other racial group or ethnic group, with more than 39,000 people dying every single year. The health consequences are especially severe as COVID-19, which is disproportionately affecting black people, can carry a greater risk of severe illnesses for tobacco users. The examples highlighted in this sample just merely underscore how aggressive and exploitive tobacco industry tactics targeting the black community have spanned decades and continue today. Big Tobacco has sponsored cultural events targeted direct mail promotions, and placed advertising in publications and venues that are popular with black audiences. Several studies have also found a greater number of tobacco advertisements and a larger presence of tobacco advertising in African-American neighborhoods. For example, Truth Initiative researchers found that in predominantly black neighborhoods in Washington, D.C., there were up to 10 times more tobacco ads than in areas with fewer black residences. If you want more deep information about this, I encourage you to go to the Read Between the Lies website. But for now, I want to bring in the activist I was telling you about earlier, Lincoln Mondi, because he, I really needed someone to come on in the, come on and engage in a conversation with me, someone who knows more than I do, who has been researching this a lot more than I do. Lincoln is a filmmaker and activist like myself, and his most notable work is entitled Black Lives, Black Lungs, that highlights the tobacco industry's decades-long campaign to target black communities with the sale of menthol. Lincoln, for me, is the best person to talk to if we really want to understand how 
insane this topic is and how aggressive big tobacco has been and how urgent this is for us to fix. All right, what's up, Lincoln? Thank you so much for joining me on the show. I'm so happy to see you and to talk to you. I'm just so inspired by your work. Uh, can you tell the people a little bit about yourself? Hi, everyone. My name is Lincoln Mundy. I use he him pronouns, and I design campaigns and visuals and strategy, really all focused on young people's health and rights. I do that through a lot of different projects, some focused on sexual and reproductive health and rights at my organization called Advocates for Youth, but the reason why I'm in your ears today is because of a film I made with Truth Initiative called Black Lives, Black Lungs. Dope. And I, again, I'm so inspired by your work. Uh, we're just going to go right into your documentary, which I think like the, the title for it is genius. It was so good. It was really clickbaity and it was amazing. Uh, can you tell us what inspired you to make the film? Yeah, so I, honestly, I, I think it's really like how I approach most design projects or, or campaigns that I work on. It's really all focused on a central question, right? Uh, a question that I don't know about, a question that I'm curious about, a question that keeps me up at night, a question that I care about answering for my community. And for this specific film, that question really was, why is menthol so ingrained in black culture? Uh, I, you know, from an early age, maybe like you, just associated menthol with, with black culture, whether it was like Dave Chappelle jokes or like the cool jazz festival or, or Newport's. And I just, I did it without questioning, right? And so I got this question in my head that really never went away. And I, I think, honestly, sometimes that's the best work you do is just the work that keeps you up at night, the work that you're like, I have no idea how I'm going to answer this, that forces you to ask other people. And that's the brilliance of it. It really is such a community effort because it was a question that I had no capacity to answer by myself, right? I, I needed our elders who are steeped in the research. I needed my peers in California who worked on the issue for the locality. I needed everyone around me to produce this, this short film, which is response to that question. Yeah. Um, in watching your documentary, I, I remember getting very mad and and in doing my own research for this podcast i just got really really mad about what big tobacco what this industry was doing what they are doing and I, there was a specific quote from your documentary of this girl who said that her uncle died of a tobacco related illness and he most likely never would have taken up smoking he never would have picked up a cigarette if the industry didn't tell him that asthma was going to cure I, well no that that cigarette smoking was going yeah. to cure his asthma which sounds crazy mm -hmm. but this is real stuff the industry was telling Correct. to most to the most vulnerable people exactly uh what yeah exactly so what information did you uncover in your documentary or researching for your documentary that was shocking to you yeah I think you point like I think you you nailed you nailed it right there when you were talking about really you know what the industry was allowed to get away with when it comes to messaging and like you know ads they were 
I think it's kind of shocking to to like me and you and and our peers because there's so much to, to like there's so, to our every day there's so much like restrictions right like when we see tobacco industries today advertisements they have you know white surgeon general marks right they cigarette packs sometimes have pictures of black lungs and uh, tobacco related diseases and illnesses but there was a time when the industry had free reign to really invest billions of dollars in misleading messages right like the industry was able to court an entire demographic and say that menthol you know makes your breath fresh right they had all this access to community because of their power because of their personnel because of the money that they held and the power that came from it and so that was really kind of one of the most shocking things is that an industry was allowed to, you know, have doctors <laughs> sign off saying, you know, I smoke cool cigarettes and have, you know, literally have executives stand up in front of Congress and lie, saying that they had no idea mm. that uh, they have no research or no knowledge that uh, smoking could cause illness. And today it's ridiculous, but back then I think a lot of communities was really susceptible to that. And I think the black community, you know, look at the time. At a time when, you know, black people were suffering through Jim Crow and, like, couldn't get a job or sit at a lunch counter or had to go to different public restrooms or bathrooms. Like, that was at a time when the tobacco industry was allowed to say whatever they want. They were allowed to give out free products wherever they wanted. And they really were successful in really entrapping an entire community. To your question, you know, what was the most surprising? I think a lot of it was surprising. But... For me, it all drills down to, you know, how successful they were, right? So we know the facts that in 1953, only around 5% of African-American smokers reported smoking menthol. After campaigns and philanthropic donations and lobbying and black CEOs and black advertising and black press and black churches, that number is up to nearly 85%. Today, nearly 85% of African-American smokers report smoking menthol. So you can see where in a matter of 50 years, which I think for some might be like, oh, that's a long time, but really it's not in the grand scheme of things. They were allowed to have such an impact on the black populace. They were allowed to have such free reign to our community that they were successful in, in what they set out to do, which was make menthol a black cigarette. Man, that is, what you're saying is so crazy to me. And hearing you say that the, the tobacco at one point had free reign to just pay people to spread misinformation and like come up with fake studies. Correct. And it makes me think about like the war on drugs yeah. and how marijuana for a very long time, people used to fight to get studies on it. And when scientists uh, would come up with information saying that this was not really a harmful drug as compared to alcohol like it shouldn't be up there with heroin and cocaine that certain administrations and and, and governments uh government leaders just ignored that information because marijuana was hurting the black community and it's the same thing with tobacco they they put money into it because it was doing the same thing it was hurting the black community correct and just like marijuana yeah it's just like what you just said around, um, and sorry for interrupting you, but no problem. It, just gets, it, it gets you because wait, I lost my train of thought. I'm going to catch it. Oh, it's okay. Um, you're exactly right. Right. When you're looking at who it's actually harming and like the community that it's affecting, it's not a coincidence that there's not accurate, you know, accountability around it. Right. Take for instance, 
um, corrective ads, okay? So, like I mentioned, the tobacco industry didn't have, early in their days, have a lot of regulation on where they could advertise or, you know, commercials. Like, right now, they, there's not tobacco commercials because it's outlawed. But while even addressing the harmful, misleading messages the tobacco industry put out, even the response wasn't equitable, right? In the response, a federal court ruled that the tobacco industry had to run corrective statements. They literally had to run ads that say, we misled you. Tobacco causes cancer. Tobacco causes harm. This is the Surgeon General warning. And they were made to have corrective statements by ads in publications. But the publications they were made to buy ads in were quote unquote mainstream publications. It was USA Today. It was Time Magazine. It was these quote unquote mainstream publications that could reach a populace to tell them that the tobacco industry was lying to them. The publications that were missing were the black press. It was the Jets, the Ebony's, mm -hmm. the Black Enterprises. Those same magazines that were getting more advertising, right? Like the tobacco industry was targeting Ebony and Jet and black press because a lot of investors were not investing in black press. So that, therefore, the tobacco industry spent millions in Ebony, The Root, Jet, all these black magazines misleading them. And then even when it was time for, you know, quote unquote, the state to intervene and, you know, take care of the people, which I'm saying because it's ridiculous because it doesn't happen, even that was like not even equitable, right? Like black people were left out. And it's really, really, really kind of eye-opening because one of the feedbacks I get when I was presenting this film was like, you know, Lincoln, you uncovered something, right? Like you uncovered this conspiracy theory that, you know, for so many years the tobacco industry has targeted the people, but that's not true at all. All of this information has been public record for decades, right? Like all of my film is just from public records because the tobacco industry was made to release all their emails and meeting memos and strategy plans through federal master settlement agreement. Um, but the fact that people think it, you know, is a cover-up or coincidence, I think is telling because the fact is, is that it happened in broad daylight, but it was who it happened to as to why there wasn't a problem. So that's always, I think, through and through the biggest kind of lesson I learned in this is that, you know, who was looking out for us, right? <laughs> Except for us, who was looking mm -hmm. out for us? And that just wasn't the case. And I, I think that just gets me deeper into my community with like, you know, black liberation and like black health, like that's going to come from us. It's not going to come from anywhere else. It's not going to come from institutions or from the government. Yeah. Like what you said about how all of this stuff happened in broad daylight is so true. And there's certain things that black people have known for centuries that we've been telling people for decades mm -hmm. and they're just believing. Correct. Us. So just like in this this summer where all this stuff was happening and there was a political unrest and right now the New York Times bestseller list is how to be a anti-racist like there's a whole bunch of political books that are are high up and people are buying them because people are only now believing us. Yeah. They're seeing all this stuff happen. Yeah. They're seeing how how uh people are being murdered they're seeing the videos of george floyd we've we, when we say we've been seeing that in our communities for decades we've been yeah. seeing over policing we've seen in this year alone there's been a record in the amount of states that have uh uh legalized marijuana Correct. because they're now just realizing yeah it's not a big deal <laughs> and now and now they want our so labor. long and now they want our labor to educate right like now they want exactly. to tap in. And that's the thing, like the people that I showed in my film, like Dr. Philip Gardner and Dr. Carol Magruder and Valerie Yerger, Dr. Valerie Yerger, like 
all of them have been working and bringing the alarm on this issue for decades. They've literally been public health experts at the tables in the room saying, look at this, this is a problem, this is a problem, this is going to cause immense harm, the black people are suffering. Why does public health messaging not focus on this? Why is it such a, you know, uh, one size fits all approach right now? And it's really, really, honestly, and I'm gonna be honest, it's really um, disheartening and it's kind of like, you know, it, it's kind of like, why now? Why should I engage with you or why should I engage with institutions that weren't listening four years ago. Because, Christy, when I released this film mm -hmm. four years ago, having a film titled Black Lives, Black Lungs that was a public health film, that was, in, a, in, a, in of itself, such a monumental hill to overcome. It took so much time and so much of my labor and so much of my energy to explain to people why I would not approach a public health issue like smoking or tobacco-related um, illnesses without also talking about all the stressors, all the trauma, the lineage of trauma that black people have endured in this country since the inception. So I think mm -hmm. that aspect is, st I'm still challenged by it because again, four or five years ago when I was doing this in 2015, that was at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement, right? Like that is when people were on the ground in Ferguson. And again, it's like, now I'm working on another film and the same shit is happening. <laughs> and it's, it's really, yeah. really, disconcerting but at the same time i think seeing all of the black youth activists and black young people and black experts who are just like not giving up like i take dr philip gardner for instance right dr philip gardner's paper the african-americanization of menthol uh that was the first paper that i read that got me into this issue that's what motivated me he wrote that what 12 years ago now you know like and and the fact that he still has the motivation to deal with people's um responsibility politics with public health's uh, space refusal to understand that your zip code, your sexuality, your race, your your finance, like all of that has an effect on your on your actual physical health, and and therefore you cannot just approach these things in such siloed environments. Like I think that a lot of people um, across the country in this space, when I talk about this issue, you know, wanted me to make a Black Lives Matter film, and they wanted me to make a smoking related film right they, they didn't see how one could be both they could because they don't yeah. have to they live. don't see it as a social correct. they don't see it as a social justice issue correct yeah. correct and i think it's also just yeah. the benefit of them not having to always when they move through the world you know speak for a community or like you know be held accountable for a community or like you know be an educator on a whole community right they're allowed to just you know be siloed and and that's that's the essence of privilege. It's really like protective layer, right? Whereas black people, it's like, why would I speak about the harmful impact of, of smoking and cigarettes while not also at the same time understanding why there is an immense amount of stress in our community and why every day black people are at risk for their lives, right? So like, that doesn't make sense in an approach to me. And I think I'm really, really glad that I was held in community when I was, when I was younger, because if I would have kind of like listened to the broader narrative in public health, it would have been like, stay in your lane, focus on this, don't bring quote unquote activism into this work. When in reality, that's, that's the success of Black Lives, Black Lungs, is that it's relevant, is that it's honest, is that it's not siloed, that, you know, it, it gives people the respect the, I think the responsibility and honestly the respect that black people deserve to know that we are, you know, mo not a monolith, that we are multi-dimensional functioning beings and that, you know, 
all of these things has an impact on our health and that race and racism literally has a physical and i think i can attest to that this year i'm sure you can too just watching day by day people you know quote unquote debating your humanity or debating the the essence of mm. of the audacity for someone to say black lives matter like that is physically damaging that is stress that is stressors that is taking in so much content that is just against you as a human so i think i am on one hand am very sometimes uh disappointed in a public health generation that seems to be very very um focused on like not straying from the narrative to like you know not cause too many uh flare-ups or not cause too many you know uh too too much ruckus if you will and that's why i'm much more inclined to people like you and public health experts who again know that this is all intertwined that this issue is intersectional it should be approached from a social justice framework we're not asking you know people outside of our community to tell in, to come in and to point fingers at black people telling them to stop smoking menthols i'm not asking that we're not asking for other people to tell us what our community needs. We're asking for our community members to ask the question, you know, what is the worth of the black body? And, and do I want to invest in a corporation that is specifically targeted to my community? Yeah, at that point where you said, is this worth the black body? Like in your documentary, one of the experts that you had on there said that about 90% of all of our civil and social and, and political organizations have taken money from Big Tobacco. And the fact, like there were so many uh, great points you make in the documentary about how the tobacco industry was one of the first industries to give African Americans high paying executive jobs. It was one of the first industries to employ black actors and black models for their ads. Like black people would be watching television and they would never see their face unless it was in a tobacco commercial. They would be walking down like uh, the street. The only time they would see their face on a billboard was in a tobacco com uh, tobacco ad. And how like these big, big organizations that we put all of our trust into, the NAACP, the, the, the Black Caucus, yeah, the Congressional Black, uh, Black Caucus have taken money from these people. And some of them have done so knowing that they're targeting us and they're killing us. So what do you have to say about all that? Like uh, when we're talking about the worth of the black body and then these these companies, these organizations telling us that our lives do matter, but then take money from people who don't think so. Exactly. I I This is one of the biggest like, you know, I think this is one of the biggest things that I, I would would have wanted to like be clearer on in the film because I think what happens is that people didn't necessarily uh, some people maybe when they watch the film they don't immediately know that Lincoln Mundy is making this for black people and black people specifically and it's not from a white gaze and so when I'm asking questions like the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation taking money Al Sharpton taking like money college is taking money I'm not saying you know these black institutions are horrible institutions and we should cancel them and we should you know take away all their funding i'm saying hey that's a question right you know is the tobacco industry specifically targeting our community with with funds because no one else is and what are we getting in return right i always want to approach things from a much more like autonomous point of view right like i'm not again i'm not someone that you should take my recommendations and things like that to heart 
I want people to make their own decisions. I want people to say, after watching this film, okay, you know what? I don't want to invest in this corporation because guess what? Money equals power and influence, and I know what they do with that, right? So I think you know the tobacco industry was was so so smart in cornering the black market when no one else you know was giving us jobs or seat at the lunch counter like Dr. Phil Gardner said, and it has really really insidious impacts, right? And so. I call people out routinely, right? But I think what gets lost is 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 this is the intent behind it, right? The intent isn't for all black black students who are currently going to school, um, which through tobacco industry scholarships for them to give their scholarships back and leave school, right? Because the reality is that a lot of black scholarships, like the Thurgold Marshall Fund and other funds, are funded by the tobacco industry, right? But at the same time, you can't tell me that I, I absolutely cannot ask the question of what are we getting in return? Or that I cannot ask the question of, hmm, why are they specifically paying this black organization? Or why are they specifically targeting this black organization? And then what do they get out of it? Earlier on, the NAACP in return, they were handing out free cigarettes. Um, my, in my film, uh, one of the experts who was an intern at the time, who was our age at the time, at the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, literally wrote a letter, was like calling them out and saying, I'm disappointed that we have free tobacco products. So it's hard, it's challenging, but it doesn't mean it's a moot point, right? It doesn't mean that we cannot do better as a community. I'm not saying that, you know, in the next five years, we can entirely divest from the tobacco industry. I hope that's the goal and I hope that we get there. But at the same time, I think calling out their tactics specifically is what's it's what's there because at the end of the day this is what they want right like they want to have scapegoats because what happens is that like it's just a game right oh lincoln says the tobacco industry is racist but now the tobacco industry has this black activist al sharpton that says menthol bans are racist and that talking about this is racist and that you know not giving black people a choice is racist so it's brilliant on their end but it's not getting us anywhere as a community and i do strongly believe that the, uh, the younger generation is seeing this more transparently, right? I believe the young, younger generation is seeing tobacco industries shipping out uh, masks and having free gear at pride parties. I think that they see that as more strategic than, like, authentic. Um, and if they don't, my hope is I convince them. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think we've seen this year, especially, especially our generation, have seen right through these companies who for years have done a lot of racist things or have been uh, kind of com silent mm -hmm. but complicit on the topic. Mm -hmm. But yet, after the summer, they, they're putting up Black Lives Matter yes. this, Black Lives Matter that. Yes. And like even with the, the, the football team, the Redskins, mm -hmm. and how it, this year they got the epiphany, oh, this is offensive. I'm going to take the name off. I'm going to call myself football team. Like, no. <laughs> like, everyone has been telling you for decades mm -hmm. that this is wrong. But the only time that they changed up themselves is when they started losing sponsors. And that's when they realized that this was offensive and they then changed their name. And I think, like, with it's unfortunate that they had to lose money for them to see that it was wrong. It's, it's, it's unfortunate, but that's where we are. And I think that's the same reason why, like, the tobacco industry is still very prominent within the black community because they're able, like what you were saying before, they're able just to flaunt a couple of dollars in our face and we'll grab it because no one else is giving us money. Like, they're, they're, it's, it's, it basically gives them a, a scapegoat to say, oh, I'm not racist because I'm mm -hmm. giving you all money. 
Yep. I gave uh, I gave this HBCU money that the the Meharry. I yeah. gave money to them seven point mil, seven point five million dollars. Even though they're making seventy five million dollars, you know, <laughs> an like hour at this the bucket point. to them. Yeah. An hour exactly. <laughs> Like it's it's almost like when white people say, "Oh, I'm not racist because I have a black friend." Mm-hmm, exactly. It's the same concept. It's this. It's, They're doing Kristen, terrible that's things. It. That's it. Because that's I mean that's when you have you know like <laughs> Jewel take Jewel for instance like the personnel at Jewel you know let's name them former head of the NAACP Ben Jealous former you know Obama official Heather Burgess you know, so many people who. The industry, it's so transparently using as, you know, shields for when regulations come up. And we've seen how this works, right? So we know that the industry gave a lot of money yearly to the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. We know that they had the Cool Festival. We know that the industry donated to the African American Smithsonian Museum for Black History, right? We know all of that. And wow. we also know that in 2009. Know that. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. Blacksonian, everything. We also know, Kristen, that in 2009, when all this was up for a vote when all this was coming to heads when obama was signing the 2009 family uh tobacco prevention smoking act which the whole goal was to focus on flavors right the whole goal was to say we know as consumers as industries as whatever we know that flavors entice more kids so if you have cherry if you have soda if you have starbust that's going to be more appetizing or more appeasing to a kid than a, a tobacco without any flavor right but the thing is, is that the tobacco industry has been so successful in uh, absolutely crafting a narrative that menthol is separate, that menthol is not a flavor. When in reality, we know that menthol is a flavor just like bubblegum is a flavor. Menthol is no different from bubblegum, from cherry, from anything else. The only difference is who primarily smokes menthol, and that's black people. So in 2009, literally all flavors were banned in commercial tobacco products cigarettes except menthol because the industry was able to get it out of the bill because why because they had people on their payroll who they could call could write op-eds they could write they could go on tv al sharpton they could write you know uh op state op-eds like black like black law enforcement officials wrote state op-eds about how menthol bans are inherently racist right and that's 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 the game it's it's not just because, oh, I want to give this person, you know, a leg up and I want to hire them. That's great. But also two years later, when you're using that person to say that this ban or this whatever you want for your company is racist, that's also very clear and transparent. Yeah, absolutely. So what have you been doing after your film or well, post film in these past yeah. like, three years since it was released? Yeah, I can't believe it. Yeah, I came out with it in 2017. <laughs> And I will I, I'll say I will say that, you know, I love that I had the opportunity to work on this film with so many creatives and the Truth Initiative and with young people because it really was like the start of my career. Um, I worked on this film and launched it while I was in college, um, graduated college and immediately started working at a political affairs firm, really doing the same thing that I do with Black Lives, Black Lungs, which is, again, designing visuals, designing campaign strategy that really gets to the core of an issue. It brings new audience members in, uncovers things, and messages and makes it in a way that's that's community-based and community-centered. So what that means is that I, after Black Lives, Black Lungs, directed a YouTube series for LGBTQ youth of color that, you know, we have guests like MJ Rodriguez from Pose and Reggie Bullock of the Lakers talking about, openly, about, you know, HIV testing and mental health in the LGBTQ community. And, you know, we have videos for me on uh, how to interact 
with police, which is videos that we should not have for a sex ed curriculum, but videos that we know we need for a sex ed curriculum, because why? Because it happens. So I've been really focused on telling stories, uh, kind of designing, kind of sharing narratives, really working with different people, whether they're young people, um, experts, whether they're sex ed experts or public health experts, and really delineating, you know, the common thread amongst all of us, a common thread that like ties us together, a common thread that gets someone to do something, right? Like my goal is to never to make something and just for a person to watch it. I think a lot of people think that's it, but my goal is always to make something and not only for a person to engage with it and watch it, but for a person to like impacted by it, a person to be mobilized to do something, a person who's willing to go to their university office and ask for a campaign plan, or who's willing to go to their local city meeting and say, you know what, I just learned about this issue, I care about it, and what can I do to make sure it stops, right? It's all focused on making sure that young people are centered, <laughs> that young people aren't just used as props as, you know, to tell their stories, but that young people have expertise, you know? I think we look at expertise as, you know, someone having this medical degree or someone having this law degree, but you know what's expertise when it comes to um, sex ed and when it comes to LGBTQ health and rights? A young person who experiences it. A young person who walks through school being silenced. A young person who has to turn to misinformation online or porn or other things instead of, you know, their educators or the trusted adults or their community elders. So I really look and value young people as experts. So I think Black Lives, Black Lungs really just opened the door to my kind of evolve my work and it was a way for me to like see if I was interested in the type of work and I, I kind of like started it and never stopped looking back and so one of the things that's been going on is ever since I launched the film it's really been active in terms of me visiting community members right I've been to black churches in Spokane Washington I've been to community centers in in San Francisco I present virtually to a classroom in Vermont I presented the film at the NAACP convention in Detroit last year, uh, you know, at Yale, at all these different institutions and colleges, and that's really kind of what spurred the next step, which is it's time to give an update. It's been four years since the film was, three years since the film has been out, and it's time to really share what's been going on, because while the first film documented the history it's definitely much still the present, right? You know, like it's still impacting the black community today. So what I've been working on is, is something I didn't know I was working on. <laughs> so for the past three years, as I've been talking to people, I've been hearing more and more about the rise of e-cigarettes, right? I've been hearing more and more and seeing, uh, you know, staff changes, which is something that I'm really intrigued in because I think it shows the strategy, but something that's not really immediately seen but seeing staff changes, you know, like mm, Altria buying 35% stake in Jewel, right? And then implementing their a new CEO, right? Staff changes like hiring the black vice president of the Mayor Association of America, who's primed to know lo local laws and local regulations onto Jewel so that then she can help defend Jewel's product in those local localities <laughs> and working with the mayors that she was just working with in a different capacity, if that makes sense. So I've been watching that, and yeah. it's led to me making a second film. It's led to me understanding that the time is ripe to show people that, you know, big tobacco is getting bigger. You might not see smoking cigarettes and, you know, things like that in your everyday life, but big tobacco is really coalescing their personnel, 
their profits and their power around two products now, not just traditional cigarettes, but also e-cigarettes. So I'm really excited to be working with Truth Initiative on an update that really gets to the core issue of, again, framed from black people, from our experiences with a social justice lens of what's happening and how is our community once again being targeted um, while at the same time, quote unquote, being invested in, right? Wow, that is so great. Thank you so much, Lincoln, for coming on the show and bringing your expertise and your great mind. This was a great conversation. It was so uh, lovely chatting with you. you online? <laughs> how can the people find you online? Of course. So for everyone who's interested, you can uh, easily find me at lincolnmundy.com. You can check out more of my visual work like Kiki's with Louie and amaze.org, as well as The Fool. Black Lives, Black Lungs. So LincolnMoney.com and then my uh, social is just my first and last name. And I just want to say that, like, Kristen, this is it, right? Like, these conversations, the work that we're doing from peer to peer, of course we love organization support and we love institutions, like, actually valuing and investing in black young creatives. But I think this year, if it's shown in anything, it's, that it's about community care, right? It's about us looking out for each other it's about us creating new frameworks. It's about us creating new narratives that we control and that we lead. So I love this podcast and I've loved getting to t- chat with you today. Now, I know this was a lot of information and I know it, it, it's heavy too. So I applaud you for getting to the end of the podcast. But if you feel angry right now, if you feel frustrated, if you feel any of those feelings, or if you just want to to do something about what you've heard today, I'm urging you to take those feelings and use it to your advantage. Create change in a way that is unique to you. Don't just do something generic that everyone else is doing. If you want to draw, draw. If you want to sing, sing, do something that's generic to how you want to make change and making change doesn't mean that you're reaching thousands of people if you were able to get this message to one person if you're able to change one person you've done a world of difference so do something if you want to if you want to share this podcast go ahead and do that So if you simply just want to learn more information about this topic and you want to join the fight against big tobacco, text OU to 88709. That's the letters OU to 88709. I'm so glad that you listened through the podcast and I really hope you enjoyed it. So yeah, thanks. This is Chris. Peace and love always. I'll see you next time.